Hi, this is Jay Todd Anderson, and you are listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. be another episode of Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. Hello and thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Nikki Dakota, joined in the studio today by the film guys through the magic of the phone line. It is our great pleasure to welcome Mr. I'm going to say Mr. Adjunct Hollywood, the keeper of all facts, film, and the nitrate film archivist for the Library of Congress. He's George Willeman. George, welcome. Hey, don't phone me. <laughs> also live in the flesh in the studio is our very own friend to all the big stars and the storyboard artist for the Coen Brothers and many, many, many more and uh, 20 years and counting. And he also finds his home sometimes here in Dayton. And we call him J. Todd Anderson. J. Todd, Welcome. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's nice to be here today. Thank you very much. We find ourselves communing on a uh, more or less weekly basis over the notion of what we call perfect films. And this time around, it is uh, 1950s asphalt jungle. And, Boy, and uh, this is, I tell you, man, I love this movie. Uh, just, yeah, me too. I, I just... Boy, every scene, every piece of dialogue in this movie, every loser, <laughs> it's just too much fun. People that are desperate are just great movie material. It was like a weekend with my family. <laughs> I'm kidding. Tune away, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm going to hear about that one. You are. Perfectmovie.net. <laughs> That's right. Just, just right to the boys. Film right guys to George, not to me. Perfectmovie.net. Film guys at perfectmovie.net. Um, speaking of this notion of perfect movie, this is uh, this is not something that came to you in a dream and you just toss no, out no, no, like no. nothing. There are actually very stringent, very strict rules that these nobody else has the standards pass. and practices that the film guys have for perfect movies. And those rules, gentlemen, are standards and practices are. <laughs> The asphalt jungle is perfect because it creates the world it exists in. And it totally sustains that world. And regardless of changes in society, the asphalt jungle, a perfect movie, retains its meaning and entertainment value. And it is never placed in any kind of preferential or numerical order. The asphalt jungle is perfect by its own scale. So, John Huston, the, the director, the cut that uh, Jay Todd was uh, uh, kind enough to lend to me opens with a little snippet of him introducing the film, which is a really cool little intro, unfortunately. Apparently he's basically the, telling you why there's people, they're all losers, so don't get attached <laughs> to them. That's what he's saying. <laughs> and we want if, he to say, if he was doing it nowadays, we'd say... I just put the big L on their foreheads, and they do have characters in this movie. What did he call it? He called it a story of vice, or what was it? That everybody has a story of vice. (laughs) Everybody has his uh, particular sort of weakness, and uh, and and the the, he I forget what's the character's Sam Jaffe's character George. What's his Uh, name? Doc. Your doc has young women as his voice. Ooh, then that's a really <laughs> creepy scene, too, oh, by the way. Great, but we'll man. get to that later. So it's it's quite a story of intrigue here. There's a no. lot of uh, a lot going on. Well, and it's, and it's interesting that that you, you John makes a, a, a this is a story about losers because it's <laughs> like uh, John Houston got really into films about losers because if you look at the films, uh, some of these really major films just before this one, we have Treasure of Sierra Madre. 
and you know Humphrey Bogart is a big loser in that film, and then uh, Key Largo, which has lots of losers in it doing awful things to each other, and then we get Asphalt Jungle. You know, and, for, and then after Asphalt Jungle, he kind of switches gears and goes into a, a totally different, uh, a different realm with uh, African Queen and Moulin Rouge and Moby Dick. But he's a skilled craftsman. Um, when you watch this movie, you're looking at a real genuine bonafide filmmaker here. Because yeah, it's, it's not a wasted frame. It's everything about it is so balanced and so nicely done, so well written and. The, one of the amazing things about this movie, and I am using that word amazing, is because it's shot with minimalist, absolute minimalist sets. And, and they only look one way. There's hardly ever any reverses in this picture. But the angles are all kind of dialed into that person's desperation. Um, um, it's just everything is, is really smoothly, deceptively simple in this picture. And I would I would venture to say that the majority of it is shot on location, because some of those because I, mean, I was watching them like I'm like these, you know set 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 decorators and set people and designers are really great, but there's a certain when you're actually out on location, there's a look to those things that cannot be duplicated. The texture of this film is just so real and so rock hard. Mm-hmm. Um, when you watch this movie, you'll notice one of the, one of his trademarks is moving the story with the characters into the lens and out of the lens. And he does this with absolute precision. Now, remember, back in these days, this is 1950, so you couldn't really look through the camera back then. The Mitchell camera had a viewfinder that you could only set up the shot by looking at it. And then when you rolled, they racked it back over, and they had to launch the camera and move it on marks on on the uh, floor. Right, and that was all had to be worked out. To the numbers, basically, so that they could keep keep the guys in front of the camera. So the camera was not some handheld device that you could throw around. And when you watch this movie, it's, there's this smooth ballet of acting and cine, uh, cinematic kind of movement where they they tell the story with absolute deft precision. Right, and he'll have he'll have one character do something in a scene, and then have them move to another part of the frame, and then the next character moves in. I'm especially thinking of when Doc uh, meets up with Cobby, who's sort of the cent- one of the central characters, and Doc and Cobby are talking about the, this caper they're going to pull off. And then Cobby leaves, Doc moves up to the front left of the screen, and then Dix walks in. And Dix is so powerful in this picture. This is the one and only Sterling Hayden, which most people will remember from The Godfather. He's the bad cop that gets it. He's this big. Oh, wow, yeah. And he had just an amazing career. I've used that word twice. Um, it's not thrown away on this picture, I'll tell you that. Uh, but Sterling Hayden just takes over that screen when right. he walks he's on. He's also, I mean, he's similar in, uh, in uh, Stanley Kubrick's The Killing, which he also plays a bad guy in, and, of course, uh, the ultimate bad guy as uh, General Ripper in Dr. Strangelove. Plus, he's very physically tall. I mean, he's much, yeah. much taller than the rest of the characters. He already, he already has that sort of stature advantage. And uh, and you're right. You know, one of my favorite 
parts about doing this show is the fact that I watched that whole movie and never did it occur to me that the people were moving around into and out of fixed places within the the frame of oh, the they lens. Are. That's I, why it's, I love it's I, so wow. deceptively simple, and that's why Mr. Houston was such a talented director. Hey, George, why don't you uh, rip us a short version of that for like a couple minutes here, just so that the people that are going to go out and rent this picture after they hear us <laughs> talk about it, and it is well worth it. George can just uh, send you through this thing real quick, so you can see it's a it's. One of the original caper movies, Crime Caper. Right. Yeah, The Asphalt Jungle is based on a, a novel by W.R. Burnett, who I want to talk about in a minute. He's a very interesting character himself. But um, the basic story is this, uh, this German criminal mastermind just called Doc, Doc Riedenstein. Sam Jaffe from Bing Casey. Sam Jaffe, yep. Has gotten out of jail and immediately goes to see this guy named Cobby, who runs, who was running a numbers racket, he's kind of laying a little bit low now. With this, but he sweats all the time, right? And drinks, <laughs> which are probably this, related. Um, he's kind of like a, a Steve Buscemi of our time. Only, yeah, he does. oh yeah, he actually, he looks. Uh, Mark Lawrence, who plays Cobby, looks like a cross between Steve Buscemi and John Waters. Steve Buscemi plays. Cobby parts now when you watch him. <laughs> and, and I'm sure Steve would appreciate that. Steve is the Cobby of our time. Yeah, he is. Okay. And, and, and I know Steve, Lawrence, and I don't think he'll get mad at me. So I mean, you know, you look up the word. Um, you look up. <laughs> I can't remember it now. Oh, it's going to be so clever. And now I, can't <laughs> I had it all <laughs> planned out. Well, the doc comes to visit the cop, the Steve Buscemi of the of the past. Right, Cobby, and and Cobby, and he tells Cobby about this great caper that he has for stealing all these diamonds from this. Uh, Jewelry store. Got it all figured out. And he tells him, you know, tells him who he needs to do the caper, how much it's going to cost, blah, 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 blah. And so Cobby goes out because Cobby doesn't have enough money himself. And he goes to a friend of his, this, uh, this famous uh, lawyer, uh, lawyer Emmerich, who's played by Louis Calhern, uh, to get the money from him and, and get Calhern involved in this because Calhern has all this power and money. So he gets him involved. And they also add in uh, this character, Gus, who runs a, a little hunchback, who runs a, a lunch stand, played by James Whitmore, who is still with us, I believe. He still does garden commercials. And, uh, oh, and a very distinctive face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Yes. All right. Yes, and J- James Whitmore now, uh, his, his most notable feature is eyebrows. He has these really wonderful eyebrows, which I, need, I believe now are about 18 feet wide, probably. <laughs> and he was a stock character actor, man. He played a lot great. of stuff. He is absolutely great. And then... Um, and he also, uh, he needs a, a, a gunzel, a, a thug, basically, and that's where Dix comes in. And Dix, as we said before, is played by Sterling Hayden. And, and Dix is an interesting character because in this film, like I said, all these characters are losers, but they're backstabbers, they're double-crossers. The only pure character, the only honest character in all these bad guys is Dick. But he has a real vice. He wants to get back to his farm and, and settle up because he had a bad kind of thing of luck. And he's his own worst enemy because he had enough money to almost take care of the situation, and then he gambles it away. He's got a thing for and the you ponies, say, "Oh, yeah. please, Dix, we want to like you so much. Don't be right. like that." And and to kind of set to kind of set Dix's character, we have this little little piece of dialogue here where he comes to see Cobby about making a, a bet on a horse. We're warning you, folks. This is some great acting here. So, like, grab your steering wheel. Right. So the two voices you'll hear oh, are. are Sterling Hayden and Mark Lawrence. Hello, Dix. What do you want? I want to make a bet. Well? Your man says you got to okay it. What are you in for? 2300 and some. Okay, your tab's good for 2500 
But that's the limit. Either pick a winner or pay me when you get that far. Don't bone me. Now, look, I'm not boning Did I ever, Welch? Nobody said you did. You just boned me. Look, Dix, I I'm only... not asking you any favors. I'll go get you your 2300 right now. Now, Dix. Now, Dix, listen. Will you have a drink? Come on. Dix, come on. Come back here. Have a drink, will you? Can you beat that? No. You can't beat that, man. <laughs> well, and, and Dix does it. He goes out and gets some money and pays off Cobby. But that's when Cobby approaches him about doing this big caper. And, and in a very interesting turn of events, Dix and, and the Doc actually become, become fairly close companions in this film. They really do like each other. Um, so... They have the whole thing planned out. They go through the caper, and, and they are successful, but that's when everything starts going wrong because when they blow the safe door open in the jewelry store, it sets off burglar alarms all over the block. Not the one in the jewelry store, but everybody else's burglar alarm goes off, and pretty soon the place is swarming with cops. Um, people start getting shot, and, and the whole caper starts to disintegrate, and immediately... Uh-oh, guess what, George? What? I hear it. Something's coming up. Well, it sounds comes. like a cop maybe oh, from around the bend. No! <laughs> <laughs> okay, you can go now. You can go ahead now, George. <laughs> You're afraid I'm going to give away something? <laughs> Just in case. Just in case. <laughs> well, like I said, everything starts going to pot, going to pot and, and the characters start ratting. And, and then Julie Andrews starts singing on the mountain. Oh, wrong movie. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so everything takes a hold. Everything that was already a somewhat swirling pot is thrown into uh, just complete uh, right. bubbling mayhem. Because one of the biggest things that turns everything out bad is it turns out that, that lawyer Emmerich is broke. He has no money. So he tries to pull a double, a double time on Doc and the diamonds and has this, this uh, private detective who's working with him on it. And the tri- private detective then tries to double-cross Emmerich and ends up getting killed by Dix. And at that point, you know, it just it begins to swirl. You know, the different characters are getting getting bumped off, and the cops are closing in. And this uh, this really bad cop named Dietrich goes to see Cobby because he knows that Cobby's involved in it, and basically slaps him around until he cries like great a scene, girl. man. And he says he would great too. He scene. says you can't take the beating, and then of course proves that he can. And you're right, it is a great scene. It's really well played. I particularly by that comedy. They character. all have like respect for each other. He waits for him right. to straighten up, and yeah, that's my boy. That's my boy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. you, you are a lightweight, and you're no good, and you're really rotten. But I respect that element. And now straighten up here, and he like <laughs> you'll hands be all him. Right. He helps him clean up and everything. It's really <laughs> after the beating. <laughs> the, the cops finally return to Emmerich, not because of this case, but they find uh, his, his partner, the, uh, the detective, they find his body floating in the river. <laughs> and um, they tell him about this. They tell him about finding the guy dead, and he now, he now he knows that everything is, is falling apart. And he is at home playing cards with his invalid wife. Yeah, who's always gussing up her hair. And he, he, he comes back and he tells her what's happened. And there's this little exchange, this next little audio piece here is an exchange between Emmerich and his wife. And his little, little uh, words here at the end are sort of emblematic of the entire film, I think. Oh, Lon, when I think of all those awful people you come in contact with, downright criminals, I get scared. There's nothing so different about them. After all, crime is only 
A left-handed form of human endeavor. Emblematic of that film. Yep. Um, and I believe a lot of government officials have that on a little plaque <laughs> in their office. Left-handed form of human endeavor. <laughs> it's but, good. Louis Calhoun is wonderful. He's really good. Because he's so polished. And that's what Louis Calhoun was good at. I mean, he could come up against the Marx Brothers like he does in Duck Soup and have them running all over him and ripping his coat and still be just polished. Yeah, and in fact, in this movie, one of the marks of his character is, is that he's broke and he's desperate and he says, I live beyond my means. That's his vice. And yeah. and you're going to, when you watch this movie, you're going to start feeling a little uncomfortable because there are a lot of stuff's going to hit home with you. For, for instance, this guy lives beyond his means. Hey, he's got just this like house me. Car, like, <laughs> and it, when you watch him, he occasionally breaks down into little pieces like a handful of marbles on the floor. But somebody reminds him who he is. Hey, you're, you know, you're a dignified crook. And then he straightens up immediately. <laughs> in fact, he straightens up to the point where he goes in and he kills himself. Right. He does this whole suicide note that we – the camera – they must have rolled a thousand footer on that. It rolled out. And he writes the whole thing and you got to watch it. And then you hear – I think it's footsteps and he walks back over. Blam! And the paper blows off of the table. This is all done well, in one shot. This is master storytelling. Right, and you must add also that not only does he write this heartrending uh, note to his wife, but before he kills himself, he tears it up. Yeah, <laughs> and it tears it up because he writes that he can't bear to have her face what he has done. And he's very calm about it. He goes, "Do you mind if I, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, leave the room here for just a moment?" And then again, they treat each other with a great deal of respect, even though that the, the police have decided that this man has just done some pretty heinous things. They do let him go off into the other room to put his things together and, or and whatever. The, the whole movie is established on this principle where this cop. He uh, he's in front of uh, John McIntyre. Is that the actor there? Yeah, is John McIntyre. Is he's the okay. honest cop, and this he's he's putting screws to this cop, saying, "Well, you have three options. You can go back to the beat, and you know, or else we can um, we can do something else if really reprimanded you, or the most embarrassing thing of all, go in and fix this mistake." And yeah. you kind of push for this guy. He, he walks out. Yes, yes, I've, I've got. I've, I, I, I think I'm going to make it. And then you find right. out well, yeah, he's yeah, crooked. But, but that's the thing that's interesting is that Dietrich, you know, Dietrich is sort of caught, caught with his hands in the cookie jar. And, and, and the commissioner gives him a second chance, and he goes right out, and he's just as awful as he ever was. He's, I mean, he's nothing but a sellout. He's There's, only sorry that he got caught. Boy, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? And, you know. Uh, that's why this is such, it rings with such humanity. The character's. They all they all just ring with so much. They're they're so well developed, and they just right. and walk had, on you know, to enormous. hell. They walk down the, this path to hell in this movie, and you'll watch them <laughs> like, all the way to no, the, one, the most great, we one of the greatest. About, you know, Doc. Doc is is brilliant. He's a brilliant man, and, and he's, he's almost there. And he gets he his. Oh, I want another nickel in the jukebox, and this chick just dances for him. Yeah. And and no, no, he's got he got this cab driver on the hook to drive to Cleveland. Yeah, <laughs> and, it just, and he has to watch the girl dance one more time. Yeah, and he had gotten out under just each like a series like of close shaves. No way. And and yet the his ultimate vice was what was his undoing, which was the extreme love. What do they call them? Girls of tender age, tender. Yeah. Thought, oh, that's good. Yeah, even that's well, well put. You know, he blows yeah, his cover instantly. And they say, yeah, those kids have been coming in here with their girls at night. They're young girls at night. And he goes, young girls. And they <laughs> shine the flashlight on him. He's all, no, back off there, Sam Jaffe. You're gonna get, you're gonna get caught. It was here. a totally creepy scene where she's dancing and he's watching him yep. feeding in the. I mean, what a creepazoid. And most of it, you're just seeing. 
watching her her dance and it's i mean that's uh, innocuous enough you're just like watching her express herself but the way he's looking at her is just creepy the ultimate the ultimate john houston moment of that uh, you know another one of his really beautiful cinematic reveals is where she dances up to the windows of the restaurant and the camera goes with her and then she dances away, and through the Venetian blinds, you see the two cops looking. Yeah, at her beginning very too. nice piece of work yeah. there, man. The drum Whoa. roll there. Yeah. Hey, this movie, before I forget, has one of the greatest endings of all time. And I, every time I watch this ending, I am just, I just overwhelmed with the the finesse and skill and poise he does this with. Do I need to play the spoiler alert again? <laughs> No, I think we spoiled it. Yeah, okay. we spoiled it. <laughs> right. But I just got to tell you, this yeah. is uh, I'm, a lot of people feel the same way as I do. Sterling Hayden going back, he's running out of blood. And of course, you know, he, he's what's the guy say? He has uh, less blood than a. Yeah, not enough blood to keep a. Like, he's going to get back alive. home to be with his colts and his horses. And here he is crawling across this field with no blood. And of course, the girl can't keep up with him, you know. And, you know, she's kind of fumbling through she's the field. She's a sad story, too. But, but you know, yeah. he has no blood, and she still can't keep up with him, you know? <laughs> and but he falls down. Not to ruin a great scene. He falls down, and, and you watch the scene all the way through the credits, and right before the credits begin, you see the horses kind of... Yeah, don't, don't, don't tell that part, because people are going to love that when they see it. Right, really, how it all wraps up. You're right. It it's really one of the greatest endings of all time. Every time I watch it, I think, wow, what we should a great also, movie. I mean, when we're talking about characters, we should also mention the, the two major female characters in here. Uh, the oh, and this is. Played by Jean Hagen. And Let's see if you can guess who this is. Doesn't she do a great job? I just fell in love with her right away. So many people who, who you know, know Jean Hagen, they only know her for one movie, which is Singing in the Rain. You know, she's the, the shining star in the cinema firmament. <laughs> you know, and in this one, she really gets the Play the oh, so George, what do you lovely. say? What do you say we play this little piece of B-roll and see if people can guess who this is? Yeah, oh. this, this is, um, you don't this see is, her, I but let's see. Who it see. Is, but it's it's, it's uh, lawyer Emmerich and uh, the object, the object of his vice. Boy, Ooh. it'd almost be fun for the end trivia to not actually mention who this actress is and let no. that be the trivia question. But first, let's listen, okay. shall we? Here we go. Oh, <laughs> Cuba, that's not a bad idea. Imagine me on this beach here in my green bathing suit. Yikes! I almost fought a white one the other day, but it wasn't quite extreme enough. I mean, don't get me wrong. If I really went in for the extreme extreme, I would have bought a French one. Run for your lives, girls. The fleet's in. Oh, Uncle Lon, am I excited. Yipe! Look, Uncle Lon, isn't it romantic? Real ponds and ocean and everything. Can that be this time of night? See who it is, Uncle Lon. Why are they pounding so? I'm scared, Uncle Lon. It's a very distinctive voice. <laughs> she set the world on fire after this movie. Things were never the same again. We should probably say, don't you think? <laughs> no, you want to save it for the George? trivia question? Should we tell them? <laughs> no, let's, let's keep that. As, that's our trivia question. All right. We'll leave it. That's our but we will say that, that? Not, cinema has never been the same after this movie because of this this creature of desire. Yeah. 
Boy, is she hot in this picture too, man? She is so hot. It's easy to see why everybody got all upset about her after this movie. We are talking about The Asphalt Jungle, a John Huston film from 1950 on Filmically Perfect here on 91.3 WYSO. And there is just such a richness to this. And Jay Todd, I want to uh, mention, I want you to talk a, a little bit about the visual aspect. But first, I want to say that I, um, a long time ago, bought a, a video projector that I can put a DVD and project onto the wall or the ceiling and I tend to watch a lot of movies that way but this one I actually watched on my computer screen with really high resolution and I realized I need to stop watching movies that are projected <laughs> onto the ceiling I was just stunned by the, the by this this black and white movie and the images and the shadows and the millions of shades of gray and how this I mean it, I forgot how beautiful because I've been using this other contraption I, I think Just I'm, I'm going to throw it away as we've, as we've spoken before in other programs on the virtues of a film being in color or black and white you can imagine this film would just not be the same in color it's just it's a black and white story the sort of the grit of the city and the, the perfection the of this film is it's so relative to its time right after the war right. and you got these guys going to work but they're all criminals they're all checking in they're all interviewing for these jobs and and then you have this this uh, this camera that really doesn't move much in this picture, and the ca- the characters are moving you in and out of their dilemmas through physical motion and then pieces of dialogue, and then of course, a lot of times this movie is upstaged and overshadowed by the female that we just talked about, who became a sensation. But you can't keep this movie down simply because this woman was great. It's really hard to compete with the sum of of, of everybody in this movie because it's so good. Yeah, definitely an ensemble cast, and everyone's perfectly, just beautifully suited to their role. Um, George, I also am reminded of, I can't remember, it's something or another, I think it's Kansas City Confidential, something confidential, where it's a bunch of people getting together and planning this this caper heist. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, is this a recent film you're talking about? No, 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 it's much older, and I wish I could... Uh, there, is a, there is a film called Kansas City Confidential. Um, where that bug, bug-eyed actor, really interesting Jack looking... Elam? I, I don't remember his name, but the, the, you know, it sort of had this sort of level of yeah. intrigue they all and, try and to twists. Be, they all try to be the asphalt jungle. Yeah, yeah I this figured. This is a standard. This, this film kind of fits into this post-war malaise of cinema. that uh, And spies and double-crossing. That yeah, all, the, yeah. Well, there's like the naked city and... And remember, um, there's, there's, there's the element of... of evil, et cetera. There's the hmm. element of insurance in this movie, too, just like in uh, uh, Double, Indemnity. Double Indemnity. They're trying to sell the jewels <laughs> back to the insurance company. They sell the jewelry movie. back to the insurance company. And for a- one of the, the most intriguing things that I noticed in this movie is the detective who says tells Louis Calhoun, Don't you, hey, watch who you're telling to shut up. Well, all of a sudden, he's this bad dude. But then they face off like gunfighters, him and Sterling Hayden. And you know you start pulling for Sterling. Oh, no, you're not going to rough up Sterling because he's our man. Of course, <laughs> Sterling gets him. You know, and they dump dumping in the river, of course, because right. he's, he's not half as tough as Sterling Hayden in this movie. I think it's also notable as actually, gentlemen, we are quickly running out of time. I want to mention that the kiss between uh, the uh, the the older gentleman, the uh, Louis Calhoun, and, 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 and our mystery woman, mystery woman that set the world on fire. Ew, ew, ew. Yeah, he kind of kisses her like a ball peen hammer. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> Telling In fact, you what? I'll, 
George, what did you say? Is it probably Louis asked for about 52 takes of that? He probably, you know? he probably kept making up. Oh, I, I dried off. All right. It didn't feel right. And I just I can just hear our starlet. My teeth are starting to rot out. Hey, but be, I'll tell you what. Before, we, before we're out of here, though, I do want to mention the, the guy who wrote the book, W.R. Burnett, is a very fascinating character in cinema because, I mean, he goes all the way back to, like, Little Caesar and Scarface. And actually, the recent version of Scarface is also based on his work. And he goes from... all the way up through the 60s and finishes like The Great Escape and a couple other films. And he's from? He was born in Springfield, Ohio. Well, How about hail, that? Hail. Worked for the school system and then found he could make more money in film. Well, indeed. There is uh, gold in them, our hills out in Hollywood and uh, right here in the Miami Valley as well. Gentlemen, it has been a pleasure talking about this film. Oh, Truly man. perfect in every way. We didn't even have time to review whether or not it met the Go standards. Go out and rent this film, folks. Does. This is one of the best. Hey, if one you'd like to contact the Film Guys, please do. Their email is filmguys at perfectmovie.net. Again, that's filmguys at perfectmovie.net. Check out the archived podcasts, downloads at wyso.org, npr.org. You can find us on iTunes for the podcasting there. All kinds of ways to connect, and we certainly hope that we do. Now, gentlemen, we are almost out. J. Todd Anderson, thank you for being here. Oh, this movie, my pleasure. George Williman, as always. And we're going to tip our hand at all for the next one? No, except, except to say that it'll be an extra special Filmically Perfect. Sorry, man, at the Library of Congress. Don't stray far. Filmically Perfect, Fridays on WYSO or anytime online. See you there. Thank you for listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Please keep an ear out for new episodes of Filmically Perfect, coming very soon to iTunes and hosted on our website, www.perfectmovie.net. See you, please.